Well, welcome to this week's Read Aloud. If the weather had accommodated, we might have a bigger crowd. So I hope you all take advantage of the cookies and coffee because we're going to have a lot of leftovers if this is as big as it gets. Um, and it's, it's unfortunate because we have a really wonderful speaker, Dr. Margaret Mills, from the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Cultures. And she's going to present, she's not going to read, but she's going to present Afghan stories and folk tales. Uh, the tradition, um, I'll let her explain to you, is, is not a written tradition, it's an oral tradition of storytelling. And since this is considered an adult story time, it seems very appropriate. <laughs> so if you will. Thanks, um, Ruth. Um, I can shout, but I'd much rather if you would move up. Um, given the size and given what I'm going to do, which is tell some stories that are generally speaking told in people's houses around a little bitty fire or a little bitty stove. Um, I should explain that my involvement with Afghan stories goes back to 19, gosh, how do I count? 1974, basically, although I was in graduate school before that. I went to Western Afghanistan, ultimately. I was in Kabul for a while, and then I was in Herat, mostly, to do dissertation research on oral narrative. And I didn't know what kind there would be most of, because nobody did, really. I mean, the Afghans did, but other people didn't. Um, and what there was lots of in that context was folk tales, basically. So I ended up staying a couple of years, most of the time. and. Um, collecting stories from all sorts of people, whoever was willing to talk to me, men and women, and generally speaking in homes, in private contexts, so it was hanging out in an informal context, which is where most of the storytelling was going down. It wasn't a theatrical sort of a thing as it is in this country, and I should say that the storytelling revival in this country has actually made it more of a theatrical affair than it has been in the past, but if you're aware of storytelling, interested in storytelling, it's very lively in this country right now as a kind of a more formal theater thing. But um, I should say that this is the perfect time for telling stories. If you're Afghan, you are um, basically people are not supposed to tell stories except after dark or in the winter when there isn't be better stuff to do, like work. And in the winter, in the old days, um, there was stuff to do. It was basically handwork in the, in the home in the winter. But even now, 85% of the population is living off the land, so the agricultural system dictated that people had time to hang out in the winter. And there were proverbs about why you shouldn't tell stories unless it was either dark or winter time. And um, the polite version of this, people explained to me, was it causes confusion. It makes your head turn around. Um, the impolite version of why you shouldn't do it is that your ass will grow teeth. And so things will get very confused if you tell stories out timing, so to speak. Um, stories are also, these particular kinds of stories are also called lies. There are, you know, like telling whoppers, telling tall tales, whatever, um, which we do too. Um, there are also forms of oral narrative that are treated as historically true or profoundly spiritually true, and I, I'm, not taking, I'm not taking on that kind of stories today. But you do have some choices here, and I was debating what stories to tell, and um, I've been personally, I've been working right now on, on a book on women tricksters and trickster stories. The trickster is a type of character who appears all over the world and is a, a hero of cleverness and a hero of 
inversion, or turning things on their head, turning things around, treating things sort of opposite to the way you think they should be treated. There's a very lively and important trickster tradition in Native American storytelling. You may know about Coyote or Raven if you're from the Northwest Coast. Um, and the trickster stories that are told in the, in the Native American tradition are often cosmological. That is, they do have to do with the order of the universe. They're important. They're usually funny, too. But they're also about social and cosmic order. And the trickster stories that I'm working with are lies. They're fiction. But they're also considered to be um, having to do, I think, more with social and moral order, testing it, um, critiquing it, and doing those things. So I've got, right now, a headload of stories of tricksters, um, men and women. So that's one option. Another option is, um, uh, there's a little sequence of three stories. I should say these stories are fairly complicated, so I better start soon. Um, but there's another option, which is the pros and cons of marrying snakes which is a, a series of stories, three stories. And um, there's, uh, there's a huge long one that's basically the Persian, I, have, I don't know if any of you are into opera at all, you know, the plot of Turandot. Um, this is the Afghan Turandot story, and the, the original story of Turandot, which came through Turandot, which came through um, French, was actually an Eastman story. This particular one has a spin to it because the heroine is so anyway, um, I don't know what you want to hear. The trickster stories are very disorderly. All these stories were told not just for kids. So there are adult themes in some of them, some more, some less. But um, I don't know what you would like. Tricksters. Okay. Um, yeah, okay. What I want to start with is what I've been thinking about a lot, if you will know. And I should say that I'm not giving you like a verbatim readout of an Afghan performance of this thing. There's ways that stuff has to be the translator or explaining or for it to make sense because like every other folktale tradition, it's deeply embedded in the culture. So there's stuff that Afghans know that goes without saying and we hear it and we go, huh, you know. So anyway, so this is not, like I'm not reading you off my verbatim translations of Afghan stories of which I do um, produce, but I don't think they were very well in performance. Anyway, so okay. So the story goes that there was this guy, and I should say, I should give credit, because I actually know who told this story. The guy who was a member of the Bizarre Shia minority in Afghanistan, his name was um, Saptar Tabakoli. And he's still alive as far as I know. I hope to meet him someday. The story actually was told to him, by him to a friend of mine who was uh, Tajik, was doing his alternative service not to be drafted. Russian army by being a translator at Cal University back in the 80s. And um, he also wanted some time off to go off and tell stories. He's still an actor folklorist with two friends who work together. Anyway, he managed to corral Safdar one time, and Safdar was a pretty famous storyteller at this point. So he told the story about a guy who decided he was going to be a mullah. He said, you know, I'm going to be a mullah. I'm going to be somebody. I'm going to go be a, a mullah is a, is a Muslim priest, as you probably know. And sort of, everybody's a mullah. There are higher echelons of mullahs, but he's just kind of a man. He says, well, to be a really good mullah, you need to have a book. I'm going to do a book. I sort of like getting tenure, you know. So uh, I think I'll do a book on, on women's tricks. And I should say that Makrizan, women's tricks, is a topic in Islamic culture generally. 
And for various reasons, women tricksters are everywhere in stories. Sometimes they're heroes, sometimes they're villains, sometimes they're helping one side or the other, but they're all really close. Anyway, so he says, well, I'm going to do some research on women's tricks, and I'm going to write up a book on the subject. So, okay, so he goes down to the bazaar, he buys himself some paper, and he gets it um, stitched up into a manuscript, into a white book, basically. And then he goes around, and he's watching women, and he's writing down, and he's writing down stuff like, okay, the little short ones do this, and the tall skinny ones do that, and the, you know, the, the light colored ones do this, and the dark colored ones do that, and the fat ones do this, and the skinny ones do that, and he's got this little typology of, in his own mind of women's tricks. And we should say, however, that this idea that physical resemblance, physiology, or physical appearance and character are related is actually an idea that goes back, and it goes back in European culture too. It's there really into the really modern period and later, and that your face is your character. Anyway, so he's, that's his idea of um, a women's tricks book, and he's been doing this. And one day he goes out, he's outdoors, and he sees these three or four women who are sitting on a bank between a couple of fields, and they're doing whatever they're doing. One, one is spinning, and somebody else is knitting, and they're sitting out there doing a little work. And so he sits down at a little distance and gets out his little thing, manuscript, and starts watching them and writing, watching them writing, watching them writing. And you notice what he's doing, they don't like it. And one of them says to the other, um, what do you think he's doing? You know, what's that guy doing? He's watching us and he's writing. She's, she says, well, he's either he's writing poetry or writing spells, and either case is up to no good. Because writing poetry, that's a long story about it, but poetry is very, very important in Afghanistan. And um, one of the reasons it's important is that it's a, it's, a, it's a venue in which you can talk about feelings. And in a lot of situations, you don't. But poetry is this channel. And so if he's writing love poetry, you know, this is highly inappropriate when he doesn't even know. Um, or if he's writing spells to control them, that's even worse. So um, he's either writing poetry or he's writing spells. Either way, it's a bad deal. And so he gets up, he gets ready to go. And the one woman, hi, and the woman, the one woman gestures him and says, come here, come here. And he says, no, I'm just going, get over here. So he goes over and she says, what were you doing? What were you writing? He says, nothing, nothing, sister, nothing to do with you. It's okay. She says, no, no, I know what you were doing. You were doing something. What was it? He says, nothing, nothing. And she says, listen, you tell me what you were doing or else I'm going to call Haji Falan, who's the big guy in the village. I'm going to call Haji Fulan and his guys to come and beat the crap out of you. So you tell me what's going on here. And the guy says, okay, he says, I'm planning to be a mullah, and I'm writing a book on women's tricks. And she says, that's a very bad idea. That could get you killed. And he says, I'm almost done. You know, so don't worry about it. I'll be all right. I'm almost done with this. You know, it's, it's close to done. And she says, no, you don't want to do that. He says, no, it's okay. It's okay. Don't worry about me. And she says, oh, well, okay. She says, would you like to come to my house and have tea? This is, I mean, it, it's more than even it appears to us. This is a flat out, come on. You know, will you drink tea with me is a euphemism. So he's, you know, and Safdar says to the boys who are assembled, Safdar says, you know how mullahs are, they get hot quicker than anybody. So here's this guy. So he follows her off to her house and um, goes along. And she takes him upstairs. It's a traditional Afghan house. It's got a little wall all around it, courtyard. Down below is if they have any animals, there's a little stable down below. And on the second floor, there's the living quarters. 
So she takes him in and she brings him up and she puts him in the guest room and sits him down on a nice cushion and he says, you stay right here, I'll just get, you know, food, actually there's food for lunch, I'll just eat it up, and, you know, sit here and, and I'll bring you some nice food and we'll have a nice time. So he sits there and she, in due course, she goes down and locks the door to the outside and she goes and she heats up this food and she lays out a nice eating cloth to Afghansi on the floor on a clean cloth sit, you know, on like a big tray. And um, so she brings in all this food and she sets it down and there's nice cushions and everything. He's sitting there and she sits him down and and they're starting to eat and she hands him a morsel of food, puts it in his mouth and gets really excited. And he hands her, you know, he's giving her a morsel of food, put it in her mouth and all of a sudden he knocks on the floor, on the, on the floor, right, on the, on the door. And um, he says, what's that? And she says, Oh, um, lunchtime, it's my husband. And he says, you're kidding. He says, you brought me here like this as a stranger to your house, and you knew your husband was coming home for lunch. What were you thinking? She says, listen, it's no problem. You know, I'll feed him, and he'll leave, and we'll go back to doing what we were doing. Um, just, you just get in that trunk. There's an empty, little empty trunk. You just get in it. Be quiet. No problem. Give him his lunch. So um, she gets into the trunk, and she locks the trunk, and she puts the key in her pocket. And then she goes down to let in her husband, who's still pounding on the door. So what is it? Why did you hear us lunch? And why did you lock the door? And um, so she opens the door, and she brings him up. And there's a thing you got to know about the two of them. They had a bet going. Afghans, when they pull the wishbone of a chicken, they don't make a wish. They actually make a bet. It doesn't matter whether you get the long end or the short end. You just break the bone, and that's that you set the deal. And the deal is that you wager something that one person is going to give the other, either way. And the way you determine who has to do it is any time that one of the two people gives something to the other person, the receiver has to say, I remember. I remember our bet. And if they forget, they lose. And then they have to give the other person whatever it was they bet. So they got this bet going. And so she brings her husband in. Here's this lovely layout. You know, everybody you know, beautiful food, and, and he looks there and he says, what's the deal? He says, there's, you know, um, who's here? Who is here besides me? What's going on here? She said, oh, you know, the darnest thing happened today. You know, I was going down just to the shop to get some bread, and there, there was this guy who was my boyfriend before we got married. I hadn't seen him since we got married. I didn't even know he was around, but there he was, and he said, he said, oh my God, he said, I haven't been able to think about anybody but you in my whole life. You have haunted my life. You have stolen my peace. I never thought I was going to see you again. I have never loved anybody else. I just can't believe I'm seeing you again. And so what could I do? I invited him home for lunch. And her husband says, where is he? Where is he? And she says, he's in that trunk. At which point, the would-be mullah faints, loses it, and shits all over himself in the trunk completely loses control. It's in the trunk. Anyway, and the husband says, I can't believe it. She says, you can't, you can't, what are you doing? Give me, where's the key? Give me the key. So she gets the key out of her pocket. She says, here. And he takes the key and she says, ha! I remembered, you forgot, I win! And what they had wagered, actually, was who should have the authority in the family. Who was going to be boss? So she says, I win, you lose, you forgot. Huh? And he says, you mean 
you stage this whole thing with the food and all that just to win the bet? And she says, sure. She says, you guys are so simple. You always get taken in. You never, you never get it, you know? You never see it coming. And he says, oh, come on. And I said, you know, she says, actually, I missed you. You know, I cooked this nice lunch. You didn't show up. You were late. I laid it out. I thought you were going to be here any minute. And then I just sat down and I pretended you were there, you know, so I took a bite out of your side, I took a bite out of my side, and, you know, I made this for you, it's your lunch. Come on, sit down. So he sits down and she feeds him his lunch, and he has a nice lunch, and then she walks him back down out of the house to the bus stop, and he goes off on the bus to his work, and she's bye-bye here, and he goes off and disappears, and then she comes back, and she opens the trunk, and here's this guy, completely passed out, completely you know, in a state, and she revives him, hauls him out, and says, I told you, you know, mess with women's tricks, you could get yourself killed. You mess with a stupid woman, you would have been dead. Now here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna take that book of yours, and you're gonna erase the whole thing. But before you do that, you're gonna get down on the floor and draw a line with your nose and swear that you are giving up this project. Now getting somebody down on the floor with their head on, their nose on the ground and their ass in the air and making them draw a line with their nose is something you do with a little kid who's been really obstreperous. So she gets him down on the floor and makes him do this and he swears, give up, give up, you know, I, I, I repent and so on. And um, then she takes him together with his manuscript down to the little stream that flows running water in traditional Afghanistan consists of a little stream that runs through your house. And she makes him wash it all off. And then she washes him off and gets him gone, goes away. And that's, that's women's tricks A. Um, Safdar and his buddies, when they're telling this story, um, one of them says to the other, man, this is mind you, this is uh, about 1983 probably. It was when the Marxists were in control of Kabul. And they were making a great deal of effort to get women into the profession. So women were getting educated, women were becoming teachers in greater numbers, they were getting roles in the government and so on and so forth. There was a real push to get women into public sphere and into work. And this is not trivial, it's another story. But anyway, so this guy in this situation, the audience member is listening to the story, he says, Yeah, man, you know, women today. And the thing is, that's a traditional story. That story's been around for a long time. But in this context, you know, uppity women, new problem. Anyway, so that's one. Um, and then I went to tell one that was told by my dearest friend and, and main storyteller buddy, this woman, my age. Um, when I met her, we were 28 years old, and she had five kids, one of, and she lost one child only. She now has eight, and they're all alive, so that's pretty good doing in Afghanistan. And they all are married and have kids of their own. But. Um, Anyway, at that time, she was a young mother and had been married at age 10, had her first child when she was about 13, 15. Um, totally un unlettered, no chance to go to school, but very interested in all kinds of stuff, including poetry and songs and stories. She was a really master storyteller. So long, sometime in our friendship, which we had the first year and a half of my time there, and I've stayed in touch with her, and I should know all history of the family at this point. But anyway, um, she told me the story, which she called Mathuzan, Women's Tricks. That was the name she gave it. And um, she said, once there were three princes, and uh, this is a long story, so 
chart, and it's one of the biggest stories. But anyway, um, it has a kind of, I should tell that one, it has a kind of a grim turn to it. This is a little darker, but maybe that's okay. Anyway, so um, there were these three princes, and they were, you know, friends, and they were all married, and they were living together with their mother and father in their palace and whatever. And one day they decide to go out hunting. And as they're going out, the youngest brother's wife says, while you're out, could you bring me some macrozan? And macrozan means you lose tricks, that's what it means. But the kid doesn't know what she means by give you some macrozan. He says, oh yeah, sure, okay, I'll do that. So they go off and they go hunting and they do whatever, cash things or don't cash things, and, and decide they're going back home. And the young prince <coughs> says, oh, I promised my wife I would get, get her some macrozan. And the two brothers, the older brothers, say, what are you talking about? You don't even know what that is. We don't know what that is. We don't know what you wanted. What's the point? Don't do it. Just forget it. She said, no, no. She said, no, no, I promise. Just tell mom and dad that I've gone off to do this, and I'll be back. So he rides off, and he rides, and he rides, and he eventually gets to the town, to another town. And um, he goes into the bazaar and starts asking shopkeepers, do you have any macrozan? And it's the way in the story he uses the camel almost as a, you know, he really doesn't know what it is. He just goes from shop to shop. Maybe he thinks it's some beauty aid or something. Who knows? But anyway, he's going from shop to shop, and the shopkeepers are all saying, you know, I don't know what that is. And um, he goes and he goes. And, but he's very good-looking, beautiful, drop-dead gorgeous kid. And he's dressed in a princely way, so he's very impressive-looking. And um, everybody's going like this. And up in the top of the town, above the bazaar, looking down at the bazaar, there's a woman who is her own boss. She's the head of her household. She has a couple of servants. And she looks down and she realizes there's this crowd sort of going around the bazaar, following this one strange person who's going from shop to shop. And she calls one of her maids and says, go down and find out what, what's going on. What's the deal with So the maid goes down, and she gets close enough to see this guy. And he's so beautiful that she just faints dead away, dead bomb out, because he's so gorgeous. And so she's gone. She's gone for several hours. She eventually comes back. This business is still going on. To make a long story short, the, the head of the house, the woman, I, she doesn't have a name in the story, but the boss. Anyway, she sends two more servants. And it's only the third servant, according to my friend Mother Zahir, who says, uh, she had sense. She was a very sensible woman. And she, she loved this boy, but she loved him as a brother. You know, seeing him, she really, you know. So, okay. So she goes, and she goes back, and she tells her mistress, there's this strange kid down in the bazaar who's dressed like a prince, and he's going around asking for macrozan, and nobody can sell him macrozan. So she says, okay, I, I'll deal with this. So she puts on her hijab, her cover, and she goes down to the bazaar and she says, and she's talking to him and she says, I understand you need the macrozan, I can help you. And so he follows her home. And she treats him like a guest. She treats him completely properly like a guest. And what you do if you're treating a guest properly is you feed them, you take care of them, you keep them entertained, and so on and so forth. And you don't ask them what they need until the third day. And then you say, fine, what can I do for you, actually? And the guest, if they need something from you, tells you what that is, and you either try to do it or if you can't do it, you try to summon to someone who can do it. 
or if they don't want to make a request to you, then they leave. So it's a three-day, no questions asked hospitality, and then there's the issue. And so she does this formal hospitality for three days, feeding and you know whatever taking care of. And then she says, okay, um, what do you need? And he explains, he says, my wife sent me to get represent. And she says, okay, here's, I can do that. I can take care of that for you. Um, first, what we have to do is take you to our little bathhouse here. And they shave him and put makeup on him and they dress him up really beautifully as a woman with a chadri, also known as a burka. It's called a chadri in Afghanistan. And anyway, so she takes this specimen who's beautiful and young anyway and all dolled up as a woman and she takes him to the king to the court and she says your, you know, your majesty my brother is a soldier in your army and you have placed <coughs> him far away and I have you know, I'm supposed to look out for his wife but I'm afraid that she's not safe with me something's going to happen so I'm asking if she can be kept in your house until my brother, your soldier, comes back. And so the king, she says, sure, you know, he, she can go stay with my daughters and, you know, plenty of room in the harem. Just send her on back. No questions asked, no inspection, because that would be extremely rude. And so off he goes to the harem, dressed as a woman, and the princesses think it's another girl and treat her nicely and they all drink tea and giggle and tell stories and whatever. The vizier, the, the vizier is the, the um, prime minister basically. So the vizier's daughter, who's buddies with the princesses, comes by to see what's up because they have a guest and that's always interesting. She takes one look and she gets it. And so she says, why don't you all come to my house for a party? First and foremost. And so she rounds up the princesses, a couple of princesses, and the guest, and takes them off to her house where they have another tea party and food and hanging out and gossiping and giggling and whatever. And then she puts everybody to sleep in their own little corner. And once everybody's asleep, she goes over and she taps the guest and wakes them up and hijacks them off to her own place where they spend a very nice evening. And then, and he's been told, by the way, before he leaves his hostess, she said, okay, stay there for a couple nights, and then you get a chance to get out of there and come back to her. So anyway, so they make poopy all night, and then in the morning, he asks to be allowed to go off to the bath, which is something you need to do if you have had sex, because it's good for polluting and you need to get clean. So she says, sure. So she gets him a very nice manly garb, and gets him dressed up in it and hustles him off to the men's baths, by whatever means. And he, of course, goes to the men's baths and then he goes back to his hostess, which is what he's supposed to do. And um, so he gets back there and she says, okay, great. And he says, and he dresses, she dresses him up as a guy, which he already is by now, and takes him back to court and says, your highness, here's my brother, he's back on leave, and he'd like to collect his wife. And the king says, okay, fine, terrific. So he sends back to the, the room, in the room, and says, send out the guest, her husband is here. And the girls say, well, she's 
stayed over at the vizier's daughter's house. She's not there. So they go over to the vizier's daughter's house, and the vizier's daughter says, oops, you know, because the guy had disappeared. So she gets herself dressed up in a chalky bag over her head and everything, and presents her in the clothes, because she has the clothes, because she's changing the menswear, and puts on those clothes, and goes back to court, presenting herself. And um, the hostess says, excuse me, sire, but this girl was very beautiful. We need to make sure that there has been no switch. I need to get a look you know, at this woman. So the king says, feel free. So she you know, looks under the child and she says, long girl. You know, what did you do with the real girl? Where is she? This is somebody else. And the king says, I don't know. Calls the vizier and says, And so they finally say, look, you know, we don't know. She's, she's scarred, you know, she's gone. She must have run off with a lover or something. But all we can do for you is give you two royal brides in exchange the girl you lost. So take one of my daughters, take this the vizier's daughter, who of course is more than willing to go, and um, you can, you know, that's the best we can do. I'm sorry, we screwed up here, but this is the best we can do is give you two women in the place of one. So the hostess says, I think my brother will accept that. So then they take these two women off to her house. And of course, the vizier's daughter is perfectly delighted with this arrangement. The princess is, whatever princesses tend to be a little clueless, some of them. But anyway, so th there's these two brides. And he says, well, thank you very much, but you know, I'd best be on my way because I still need to find some macrozan for my wife at home. As you know, in Islam, Four wives are permitted to one man. So the hostess says, You didn't get it, did you? He says, Get what? Just get what? That was Macrazan. It was Macrazan when I took you in disguise to him. It was Macrazan when the vizier's daughter invited you to her house. It was Macrazan when we took you back to the king to claim his women. And it was Macrozan when your wife sent you after Macrozan. She's got a lover. That's why she tried to get rid of you. So she's up to no good. You know, she's it's all women's tricks. And he's going, oh, okay. She said, okay, so here's what we're going to do. So she packs up her entire household, hires a camel caravan and a caravan leader, moves house together with the prince and these two women, two brides that he's got. And my friend Mother Z, who was very, by the way, very observant Muslim herself, said, now, the hostess, she treated this boy as her brother the whole time, his brother and sister. Um, now he's got these two brides who are given to him as brides, legitimately. And she said, as they're going back, the boy and his two brides are going off and, you know, sleeping and doing whatever. But she, the hostess, is staying up to pray every night because she's very religious. And, and so one day, as they approach, they get right to the gates of his family, Alice, whatever, and it's nighttime, and so the gates of the city have been closed, and you have to park outside the city until the gates open in the morning.
typical medieval situation disappeared. So um, they're parked out there, and the hostess, as is her custom, is staying up late to pray and meditate, and she notices that there's a very faint light. Something, someone, has come over the wall of the city and is going off toward the hills outside the city. She sees this so she goes along and she follows it. She realizes it's a woman. And as she goes along, she's following behind in the dark. And this woman goes off to a cave in the foothills where there is a Barzangi. A Barzangi is a big demon, magic, and demonic and supernatural and so on. And this woman is the lover of this Barzangi. And she comes in, he's really angry, and says, what's wrong with you? Why were you so late? I was, you know, I was ready to kill you. In fact, I'm still ready to tell you what's going on. She says, listen, she says, it's not my fault. Um, my husband is back, and his caravan is parked outside the city, and they, they're making preparation for him to come into the city in proper ceremonies, and nobody was going to sleep, and I couldn't get away, and it took me a long time, and that's why I'm late. So, okay. so then she sits there, and she you know, combs his hair and delouses him, which is something lovers do for one another, and, and you know, just cossets him and takes care of him and makes love to him and all that. And although my friend Mother Z, by the way, was of the opinion that supernaturals and humans could not have sex. And there's a story in her life about why that would be. But anyway, um, so she's, you know, the paint going on, but anyway. Um, and the hostess, the good woman, is observing all this from outside the building because she realizes that this is the kid's life, right? So, um, so she you know, stays, and then when the, the woman is about to leave, she runs into her down, and gets to a place where the path goes through two walls, and the walls are very close together, between two walls of fields. And she gets in there, and she takes out a knife. This is this part that's a little dark. And the, the bad wife comes along, and she's going to get back before the light. And the hostess jumps out in front of her and says, where do you think you're going? Where do you, what do you think you're going? She says, what do you think you're going? And she slices off one of her nose, puts it in her pocket. Yeah, <laughs> look on your face, right? This, is, this was comic in context. It's no longer comic. But anyway, um, so she goes off, you know, and the hostess goes back to her husband, or her friend, her brother, and assorted wives. And then in the morning, they make this big entry into the, into the city, and they do all that. And they're being formally um, received, and the king and queen are very happy to have their son back, and he's got these two beautiful wives, and he's gotten without having to pay any bride money, and so on. So you know, this is very impressive and good. And his wife doesn't show up to greet him. And the sister, the hostess, says, um, where's, where's your wife? Where's the mother-in-law? She says, "Where's his? You know, where's your bride?" What, how she's called by the mother-in-law. And the mother-in-law says, "Well, she hasn't been there yet today." Well, that's okay. Let her come. You know, I'm sort of a doctor. Maybe I can figure out what's wrong with her. And so the wife comes in, and she's covering her face, and uh, is you know, supposed to be moving and stuff, and she's not happy at all. And the um, the hostess, the sister, says, what's the trouble? And she says, well, you know, I, I cut my face. I said, let me see, let me see, maybe I can heal it. And she opens her veil, and 
brings the piece of her nose out of her pocket and says, there's your nose. You were out there with that Barzangi last night. I know, I was there. And then she exposes this woman to her husband and her father-in-law and so on. And as is the usual case with such cases in Afghan fairy tales that burn her in dog shit. And then Mary, the, the husband marries the girls that he won officially, and also marries the hostess, who has put off allowing herself to be considered a fiance until she gets to his house. And his father actually says, you've brought three wives. And so she's done a bunch of things that are very proper. She's very religious. She exposes a bad woman. She herself is a master trickster, but she doesn't do it in order to gratify herself or to compromise um, her family. And so in a weird way, I mean, this, this, this is why the story is really dark for Westerners. For one thing, nose cutting is going to happen in Afghanistan, and it's really a dreadful reality, um, a, a pathological reality, by the way, from an Afghan point of view, but nonetheless, it has happened. And, um, so this story, which is, you know, the, the mayhem in the King's Court is pretty funny, but then my friend, because she's so concerned, she herself had been possessed. The backstory of this was she had her own problems with demons, actually. And um, she'd been cured in a, with a religious ceremony. And so her, her issues about how the supernatural could really invade your life if you were a woman, they were quite real for her. And so the question of how this woman got tangled up with a, with a supernatural, but that she was willing to be the lover of the supernatural. And in fact, one of the things that the sister hostess says to the bad wife is, you had this beautiful husband who loved you, who was trying to take care of you and give you everything you want, and you went off and got yourself a demon lover? You know, what's that? And so the story, although it's about women's tricks, it's all also about virtue and, and, and sin in a very basic way, and disloyalty to husbands and things like that. So on the one hand, the woman is, a, is a, the hostess, the, the sister, is a very powerful woman, sort of taking matters into her own hands and tricking men and taking away, you know, robbing them of their authority and their control of the situation. She didn't retain any seer and so on. But she's doing it all sort of in, in um, with respect for and in service of this young guy's best interests and his own honor. So he, she exposes his bad wife, gets her killed. She ends up actually, because his, his father considers her to be yet another fiance, she ends up as the senior wife in this household. And she's obviously smarter than anybody else that's in the household, because she saw this coming and nobody else did, including the mother-in-law, who should have figured it out, but didn't. Um, you know, so this, this whole dynamic of what's a trickster, what's a woman trickster for, sometimes they're just, you know, it's just comic mayhem. But a lot of times, in both these stories, I think you can see in the first one too, the guy was tricked into being very inappropriate and uh, and being exploitative, or trying to be exploitative, and she just jerked the rug out from under him. She let him think that he was going to get a freebie, that he was going to be able to 
disrupt somebody else's life and still become a more. And she just, you know, she just jerked around, jerked his chain. And the second story also, there's a certain amount of that going on. People, people get tricked because they deserve to be tricked. Because from either they're not taking proper responsibility or because they're in fact corrupt. <coughs> so there, there's this serious side to these joke stories. But there's one that I, that's a little bit, I don't know, it's kind of ironic, but I probably talk too long. Well, this is real short, so I'm going to run this by you. Um, this one is a little much. The deal is that um, there's this guy, and he's a poor guy. He actually makes his living cutting sagebrush and taking it into the town and selling it for fuel, which is about the hardest living you can make. And it's really, really have no other resources. Anyway, so he's a, a brush cutter, basically. And one day, and he has a wife who's really not pleasant. She's nagging, picky, you know, critical, blah, 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 not a happy one. Anyway, so he's out cutting brush one day, and he realized there's an old, he finds this old dry well, just an empty well, it's out there in the middle of the And he, he's got his little donkey and whatever, and he thinks, oh, no. And he goes back, and he says to his wife, he said, you know what, I, had a really, I really ought to take you to visit your cousins. And she said, what cousins? And he says, you know, you got a whole set of cousins you don't know about, which is, this is possible in Afghanistan for various reasons. His families are very intricate and, and uh, extended families are very extended. He says, no, you've got some cousins. I thought, you know, it'd be fun to go. It's time you had a visit. Let me take you to visit your cousins. Ah, whatever cousins. Ah. So he loads her onto the donkey and he takes her off into the desert to this passing this dry well. And he says, let me go get a guess of water. And he goes over and he looks in the well and he says, wow, that's really interesting. I don't know what that is. What is it? What? You know. She says, what? He says, I don't know. Come over here. I don't know what this is. So she goes over and she leans over and pushes in, dumps her in the well, and goes back to the city, done with this abusive wife. You know? So he goes back, but he thinks about it, and he's not, he's not at ease about this. And he thinks, you know, I really need to know what's going on and um, what happened. So he comes back, and he's approaching this well, and he hears this hollering coming out of the well. It's not her voice, it's some other voice. Help, get me out of here, help, help, I gotta get up. And he goes over, and he's, he looks, he can't really see what's going on down there. He says, who are you? He says, and the voice says, I'm a snake. He says, you gotta get me out of here. There's the most awful woman in this well. She's driving me nuts. You gotta get me out of here. And the guy says, okay, all right, I'll do it. But I'll let down a rope. You can grab the rope and I'll reel you up out of the well. But you have to make sure she doesn't fall. Make sure she doesn't get hold of her tail. You know, whip around so she can't get, yeah, yeah, the snake says, I can do that. So he gets his rope, and he lets it in, and the snake grabs the rope, and quick hauls him out, and the snake says, okay, terrific. He says, I owe you one. Here's what I'm gonna do. But only one, because as, as is well known, snakes and humans are enemies. But here's what I'll do for you, because I owe you. I'm gonna go over the next town over with this king, who has no son, he has one daughter. And I'm gonna wrap myself around the daughter. And I will not be removed until you come. And what you do is you wait until the king offers the daughter in marriage and to be heir to his throne to whoever can remove the snake. And once that offer goes down, then you come and you know, I'll see you and I'll go away and you get the girl and you get the kingdom and you'll be you saved my life and my son. Anyway, so the snake goes off and he does exactly 
what he says he's going to do. He wraps himself around the girl and he waits. And the king tries all kinds of things, you know, magic and, and force and whatever, and the snake just won't be removed and he's dangerous and nobody really wants to get near him. And the girls, you know. So anyway, so after a certain point, the, um, the father, the king, offers the girl in marriage and the inheritance of the throne to whoever can the snake. So the thorn picker hears this and says, no, terrific, okay, deals, deals going down. So he goes over and he presents himself and he says, you know, sire, I don't know, I, I don't know if I can do this, but I might be able to, I'll give it a try. And the king says, well, what the hell, everybody else has. So go ahead, he says, I'll have to do it alone. And nobody goes in with me, I have to do it by myself. So he goes in, of course it's the snake, and the snake says, okay, we're even. And he unwraps himself from the girl and goes out and disappears. And everybody's delighted, and they have a huge marriage, and the guy's now sitting pretty, he's heir to a throne, he's got a princess for a wife, he's in good shape, everything's cool. And then in a few months, the next king over writes and says, you know, I've got a problem. The snake came along and wrapped himself around my daughter and he won't leave. I wonder if your son-in-law could come and take care of it. I know he knows how to do these things. And the king asks his son-in-law, says, can you go help out a friend and then go deal with this snake? And he says, no, 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 no. No two snakes are the same. I mean, some snakes you can deal with and other snakes you can't. I'm, I'm not, I don't think I can do this for you. I really don't. Because he's saying, oh my God, it's the same snake. You know, the guy said, I'll kill you if you bother me again. We're even now. That's it. So he's, oh. and he's trying to get out of it, but he can't. And he can't. And finally he's compelled to go. And he says, okay. And he says, I have to do this by myself. And everybody here really going there by myself and I'll see if I can do it and I guarantee you it could cost me. And the king says, anything, just do it. And so he goes in and it is the same thing. You know, rares back and says, okay, that's it, I'm going to get you, I told you. You know, one on one, this is it. And the guy says, wait a minute, wait a minute, I didn't come, I didn't come to get anything, I didn't want to do anything. I just had to tell you, that woman got out of the well and she's looking for both of us and I'm clearing out of here and I thought I'd better warn you. And the snake says, oh my God. And he unrolls himself from the girl and goes out the window and takes off his arm. That's the story. <laughs> I love that story. Anyway, okay. So, snake. And tricksters. I suppose we're supposed to have QA, aren't we? Pardon? We're supposed to have questions and answers. Yeah. Yeah. Any questions? Anybody has any questions? This is. It's kind of a darkish world, you know, because there's, there's <coughs> stuff there, and that's one of the things I'm writing about. But, uh, one of the reasons that the women's trickster, women tricksters thing attracts me so much is because of this enormous cultural ambivalence about whether women should have control over things. And of course, there's a subtext that they do. You know, in a lot of cases, they do. But are they using it for good or for ill? And so that's, that's why I'm sort of drawn into that subject. That and the fact that all this kind of weird, tricky behavior actually attracts me, I think it's just fun. But the whole issue, the issue of male authority, which is supposed to be impregnable and absolute, gets really undercut by a whole bunch of, not just this, and this is the, this is the mother load of undercutting the idea of dominance, uh, but um, there's a bunch of other things about the fact that things are even more egalitarian or at least more up for grabs about who has better judgment, who has decision-making power, 
who has moral legitimacy and so on like that. It's all much less um, cut and dry than you might think. So that's one of the reasons why I'm working on assumption as a subject. So these aren't ancient stories, these are ongoing. Well, they're ancient, yeah. They are ancient. But they're ongoing as well. I mean, the oral tradition keeps chugging along. I don't know exactly what's going on with storytelling now. Um, I know it's not gone, but TV, films, you know, various things were there that weren't there. There were films, but there wasn't television when I was there in the 70s. And even into the 80s, there was TV. But, you know. It's, if, if you get out of the United States, you find that there are a lot of places all yeah. over the world where there's not television. Um, and, and places where you don't expect it. Um, because a lot of the world doesn't have the kind of wealth we have. Um, I have friends in Russia who you know, live in a, a, a village that's right off the Volga uh, River. Hmm. tell stories? Pardon? Do they tell stories? Yes. Because with, without anything else, sure, unless they read, they get books, they yeah. read, uh, but not everywhere has that. Yeah. I have a friend, Mary Martin, who's in Philadelphia, who did field work. She's an economic anthropologist, and she did field work in a village in Iran that was, oh, I don't know, 70 or 80 miles from Herat, where I was working. And you know, I could not walk across the street without stumbling over somebody who knew stories. Everybody knew stories. And she, you know, she we were not friends, and when we got to be friends in Philadelphia, I taught there for a while. Um, she was saying, you know, was it hard for you to get this stuff? And I said, no, you know, it's all over the place. There's all kinds of, you know, generally speaking, children have to be about eight or nine years old before they're competent at it, but there's even little kids running around who can tell you a good story. And um, you know, it was like, that's what there was the most of, and that's why I was paying attention to it in studying oral tradition. And I was also interested in the relationship between oral and written tradition, because there was written tradition there. Um, that's another whole deal. But she said, you know, I spent a year, a year and a half, however long she was in this village, and she said, I never heard a single story. I don't think they knew any. And this was also an area, you know, rural Iran, it wasn't highly electrified, it wasn't saturated with media, there was a lot more Iranian television. Afghan at that point, because that would have been in the mid-70s as well. But um, she said there wasn't a story to be found in her village. And I find that hard to believe. I really don't get it. I mean, you can't time travel and figure out why that was, but I was trying to figure out, surely, you know, she would have stumbled upon somebody talking this sort of nonsense. Another friend of ours, Rafiq Kashavi, was doing research in a in an Ismaili village, a different Muslim sect, but also Shia, in the same general region. And he was getting some very interesting stories. He wasn't looking for them, but they were there. So I don't know. Um, you know, maybe the distribution is uneven, but in Afghanistan, in that time, even into the war years, there was you know, a lot. There was a lot of anxiety among the refugees, the traditional cultural knowledge was of all kinds of practical knowledge as well, would just be obliterated by uh, refugee thought because the 
quarter of the population of refugees in Afghanistan, Iran, or Pakistan, or another percent or more were internal refugees off their home turf and you know, in some city because it was the only safe place to be at that point. So um, there's enormous cultural disconnection. And um, there's a great interest in, in Iran as well. There's a great interest in stories at this point. Maybe because it's felt like it's some kind of recovery of stuff that even, even when I was there in the 70s, I, I was buddies with some guys who were Peace Corps language teachers. Uh, most of them ended up here as refugees in the end, but uh, they were at that point working for the Peace Corps in Kabul. And one of them, Tukir Yasser, who ended up in Nebraska, I believe, um, was saying, yeah, you know, my grandfather used to tell us this stuff. And a classic thing, in the wintertime especially, somebody would get started telling stories, and the kids would be there, and the adults would be there, and the kids would just fall asleep whenever. And um, he said, my grandfather would tell stories until we were all asleep. And then the next day, he'd start again and say, okay, what do you remember? You know, what was the last thing you remember? And he'd, he'd make us figure out where we fell asleep and what was the last thing we remembered. And that's where he'd pick up the story. And he said, I can't remember that. I can't remember those stories. And it's because I spent so much time in school. You know, basically the disc was full of other stuff. And that was, but I knew guys who were high school students who were excellent storytellers. And um, I didn't know very many girls who got to go to school at all. That was another story. But, um, you know, it, it, it was there. And I'm, I'm not sure what's there now. It's really time to do some research. I, I have colleagues who are doing all history research now. But I don't know anybody who's doing at this point.
But this, this erupts. If you think of your email address, I'll give you the information that can be seen as I get it. Apparently, there is no information. I don't know if it's on it. But it gives me this. this um, I'm trying to think of these other words. There's a book of question stories. Where the, I don't know if you're aware that Afghanistan has two major linguistic groups. One is Persian language related to uh, Iranian Persian, Farsi, but it's several different dialects. And the other is what's called Pashtun, which is a distinction language. And about 40% of the population, maybe even in the census, are ethnically Pashtun. So it's, it's a big language group there. And it's also over into um, Pakistan. So I think most of the Taliban is going to have the Pashtun, but that doesn't mean that most of the Pashtun is the Taliban or not. But anyway, there is a collection of Pashtun stories that are, you know, it's sort of over the border stuff, but this, that tradition laps over the border between Pakistan and Afghanistan. It's basically the same thing. The border was drawn by the British during the colonial period, so it's kind of arbitrary cultural. So, um, yeah, I mean, there is that Pashtun collection. Who's going to write it? Thank you for coming. Here. In the snow. <laughs>